0: When we sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, one of the ways that God shows his love for us is that he gives us his his word, and that's what we come together in our service to sing, to pray, to read, and to preach, to listen to is his precious Word, and we're going through, in the course of our time as a church, going through His Word. We are currently in Matthew chapter 6, so if you'll go ahead and go there, Matthew 6 verse 19 is kind of where I'll point you for now, and we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5 to 7, and so I want to ask a question as we get going this morning, and it's basically this, why is the Sermon on the Mount so convicting. All of God's Word is convicting in a real sense. I mean, it is. It convicts us when we encounter it. But why is it that the Sermon on the Mount is particularly convicting? Some of you have come up to me. In fact, many of you have come up to me after various sermons as we've been in the Sermon on the Mount since right at the beginning of the year. And you've commented on how the Lord has just been really working in your heart by his word. And I've seen it in my own heart week in and week out preparing sermons and preaching sermons. One of the things I, that I've shared is that sometimes God does the most work in me, not in the preparing, but in the actual preaching. That as I'm up here preaching, God is applying the word to my own heart in ways that are different and unique. The convicting power of his word, and particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And I think there are two things about the Sermon on the Mount that we have seen over and over again. First is that it is convicting, and second, it is clarifying. And I would even go so far as to say this, it is convicting because it is clarifying. What do I mean? So we have to go back to the beginning of our time in the Sermon on the Mount which takes us back to the Beatitudes at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5 and what did we have there in those opening verses we have a clarification of our basic DNA as Christians so it's clarified for us what it is to be a Christian what does it mean what does it look like what is the basic DNA of a believer and we get those listed blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn and so on and so forth that's a picture of a Christian, so what does that do? It challenges us to be who we are. It sets out before us, Christian, this is who you are, be that, be that, so there's a challenge with that clarification, and then we just move right along and we get to this image of salt and light, and what does this do? It clarifies our role as Christians in the world, And with that clarification comes another challenge. It challenges us to be useful rather than useless. You come to the imagery of salt and light, and the thought that comes to mind is, am I being salt and light? Am I being rubbed into the world in this preservative kind of way? Am I being bright for the glory of God in a world filled with darkness? In other words, am I being useful to God as a Christian? And so we're challenged by that. We see areas in our own hearts, in our own lives, in which we're not useful to the master, in which we are, in fact, useless in some areas of our lives. Well, then we keep going, and we get to these passages that keep, these paragraphs that keep repeating, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said But I say to you, what do these verses at the end of chapter 5 do? They clarify for us how we are to think about right and wrong. You've heard that it was said. He talks about the Pharisees and the scribes and their interpretation of the Old Testament. And that Jesus says, this is really what it's about. This is the truth. What's the challenge that we have with that clarification? We have the challenge to always think in terms of the heart. So we get to a passage like that. And we, we may be tempted to think, well, I've, I've never committed adultery. I've never committed an act of adultery. But Jesus takes it straight to the heart. And he says, if you've ever looked lustfully upon a woman, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. If you're angry with your brother, it is as if you have murdered them. So Jesus takes right and wrong out of just the mere act, and he puts it at the heart level clarifying for us and I think challenging us and then right after chapter five we move into chapter six where Jesus clarifies for us how we should go about doing our good deeds so as Christians we are we understand from all of the Bible that we should be about good deeds that we should be doing good works we should be busy about God's business so we know that's true But then Jesus offers this challenge. With that clarification, he offers the challenge that we should take a fresh look at our motives. That was probably one of the most convicting passages that we've encountered, I think. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it as such, because what it does is it looks at us functioning as Christians out there. The way we pray, the way we uh, give stuff to people, the way we act at church, the way we even carry on among our family members. It looks at us as religious people, as faithful Christians, those things in which we would be tempted to find pride or to think we're sort of doing well in the Christian life. And what Jesus does is he races once again to the heart and he says, yeah, but what's your motive? Are you performing or are you worshiping? And that is where Jesus leaves us in verse 18 of Chapter 6, a clarification and a challenge. We are challenged because these things are clarified. And now we come to this passage, which begins in verse 19, and we get clarifying content on a Christian's priorities, pursuits, and possessions. Once again, Jesus is taking everything about the life of a Christian. I mean, take every scenario, every situation, every thought in which a Christian would find himself or herself, and Jesus wants to deal with that. And now he's putting the spotlight on the Christian as a person who lives on the earth and has things and relates to things, pursuits, possessions. And with this clarification comes the challenge. He challenges the rampant idolatry and materialism that we see, catch this, all around us and in us. And so that's why when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we are convicted. It's because Jesus, in the the clearest way, in the most powerful, incisive way, is holding up for us what it is to be a Christian, what it looks like, how a Christian is to go about life. And he says, that's it. And we see it, and we tremble, as we should, as we see our own sin, our imperfection, our lack of faithfulness to The Savior, So it doesn't let up, it won't let up. It will continue to be this way all the way through to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It does not let up, and I would submit to you there are three reasons why, at least three reasons, you always have to say that, at least three reasons why it doesn't let up. And the first of those is this. It doesn't let up because we are prone to wonder. We sing that in a song frequently here, in our corporate worship service, we are prone to wonder. We are prone to be just like sheep. That's the reason we're called sheep in the New Testament. We need a good shepherd and we need under shepherds within the context of the local church because like sheep who wander from the flock and get into all kinds of dangerous situations, we are just like that in that we wander away from the Lord. We've already encountered this in two ways in the Lord's Prayer or the disciples prayer, we pray what? Forgive us our debts. So we've already recognized when we come to this point that anyone who would be following Jesus has to be cognizant of the fact that he or she is a sinner, that he or she in fact sins and wonders. So we need this convicting word from God because we are prone to wonder. That's the first reason. The second reason is this, it doesn't let up because Jesus gets rid of sin have you ever thought about that 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 is what Jesus does he is the sin crusher he gets rid of sin by nature that's what Jesus is in the business of doing. That's the funny thing about a carnal Christian is a person who's so warm about loving Jesus and knowing Jesus and very casual, but but then they got a lot. They're just filled with sin. Jesus crushes sin. Where Jesus reigns, sin dies. So here are these words from Matthew one twenty one: She will bear a son, and you shall call his name. Jesus, why? For he will save his people from their sins. At the core of who he is, in his very name, Savior from sin gets rid of it. Galatians 1.4, our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Why did he come? To save. Why did he come? To deliver us from this evil, wicked, corrupted world. First John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then Titus 2.14, which we looked at in our series before, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So hear this. It should be no surprise to you that the sin crusher, the one who deals with sin, who gets rid of sin, when he speaks, we're convicted. It should be no surprise. And that is what happens when we encounter these words of his in the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to give you a third reason. The third reason that it doesn't let up is because we belong and what I mean by that is, as Christians, we belong to a righteous Christ. We are Christians. We belong to him. We follow Christ. Remember at the end of the Gospel of John, John 21, what does is, what is Jesus say to Peter? Peter is, has just denied Jesus. Jesus restores him and tells him to follow him. And Jesus is moving, and what, is the, what, is, what does Peter do? He turns around, and he asks a question about John. So, so what about John? He wants to inquire about John's future. Jesus has just told Peter that one day he, someone is going to stretch out his hands and going to take him where he doesn't wish to go. In other words, he's going to be crucified one day. And then Peter starts to follow Jesus literally, I think as a, a symbol of what Jesus has called him to do, along the shore. And he turns around, and he starts asking silly questions about John's future, now what does Jesus say to him he says it's none of your business you follow me doesn't say none of your business that's a paraphrase but it's essentially what Jesus says if you read it he says it's none of your business essentially you Peter you follow me don't worry about John and so that's at the core of what it means to be a Christian a follower of Christ we follow a righteous Christ so it makes sense that Christ would convict us of our sin, that we might become more and more like him in righteousness. We also belong to a perfect father. Jesus has said, your father is perfect. Be perfect as he is perfect. If you call him father, be sons, those who reflect him, those who appear like him. So all of this to say, here is my prayer for us. That we would invite the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with and get rid of sin today. We would say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, and reign supreme over the sin in my life. That the Sermon on the Mount would crush sin in us as a church as individuals within the church, that Jesus Christ would come through this series, through these words of power, and he would crush the sin that so easily ensnares each of us as we deal with it from various angles, in various ways, it is all the same. Christ wants to purify his church. Remember in Ephesians 5, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, her, having washed her, purifying her. This is what Jesus is in the business of doing with his church. So let's let him deal with us today. And let's let him deal with us next week. And let's open our hearts to be convicted and to repent of sin, to really deal with sin. One of the best times to do this in the service is as you're coming up to receive the Lord's Supper. And as you go back and you sit down, there, to begin to pray and ask God to forgive you of the sin that has ensnared you in the previous week. So last week, we did an assessment of our treasure, Matthew 6, 19 to 21, those opening verses of this section, and today we come to look at our vision and our master, or we could say our seeing and our serving, you can go ahead and put up that slide, our seeing and our serving is what we're going to look at today. So let me ask you now to stand out of respect for God's word. We're going to read these verses. Now today we'll just be looking at verses 22 to 24. Last week we did 19 to 21. But I want to go ahead and read this entire section running from verse 19 all the way through to 24 because it helps to set and frame what we're going to talk about today. Money. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his help today to understand his word and that his Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts in very particular ways. We're all needy this morning, that we would all hear from the Lord as, as we go through this time. Father, we worship you. We're grateful to be here. We know that we're here by your grace not by our own uh, resolve, not by our own discipline, not by our own strength. Father, we're here because you are sovereignly gracious to us in Christ. And so, God, we thank you for that. And I know, Father, that there are some perhaps here this morning who don't know you, and they are here too by your providential care, by your love. God, would you convert their hearts? Would you change them forever? Would you transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. Would you bring them into this kingdom of which Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount? Father, we are asking this morning that you would exalt yourself and accomplish your purposes, nothing more and nothing less. Father, we know that you are a sovereign king and all of the universe is under your feet. And God, we just this morning want to participate in your work, what it is you are doing So Lord, would you help us this morning to see clearly what you're doing in our own personal lives, what you're doing even in the lives of others. Would you help us today to be transformed by this grace as we see you exalted. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you provide for us, Father, exactly what we need today. We know that there are some who have heavy hearts, some who are filled with anxiety or depression burdens of this life even spiritual burdens father would you minister to us would you give us that assurance of pardon that we so desperately need as imperfect wandering sinners those of us who are in you in christ would you would you grant us this morning a, an assurance that you are indeed our father and that christ is indeed our savior and we pray that even now you would protect our minds that our minds would be tuned in to your word, that we would not be straying mentally, that all those temptations to think about what we're going to do later today or next week or what happened last night or whatever, Father, that those things would fade away in the name of Jesus and that you would reign supreme over the minds of people here today. All of us, Father, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the title this morning is Our Seeing and Serving. And this passage, I think, forces us to ask and answer four questions, these that we have. What do you see? Why should you care? Which do you serve? And why must you choose? I think these are some of the questions that this text forces us to ask. So let's go to the first. What do you see? Let me read once more for you, verses 22 to 23. The eye is the lamp of the body, the eye. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So what is this business about the eye? What is it that Jesus is referring to? Probably, if, if you've just kind of read this in a cursory way in the past, you probably think something different than what Jesus is actually saying here. Especially if we go back to, although it's related, if we go back to what he says in chapter 5 about the eye and about seeing, looking upon a woman with lust in your heart, we see there the eye being associated or our seeing being associated with lust. And that's, that's closely aligned with what we find here. But what exactly is Jesus communicating in this passage in context? Well, first we have to say that, as John MacArthur comments, that these verses expand on the previous three verses. So that's why I read those first three together. And the eye becomes an illustration of the heart. So we've just read how where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And now Jesus goes to an image, a, a way of illustrating a truth about the heart. And he's using the eye in order to do that. So the eye is an illustration of the The heart. So we see this being done, I think, in other parts of the Scriptures where the eye and the heart are used synonymously. And the heart really is the core of the person. Sometimes the heart and the mind are used interchangeably. But because the mind and the heart are used interchangeably and the the eyes are sort of the windows to the mind, oftentimes the eyes are associated likewise with the heart. We see this, as I said, in Psalm 119. So in verse 10, the psalmist says, with my whole heart I seek you. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, I will fix my eyes on your ways. So to seek God with your heart and to fix your eyes on him and his ways are essentially the same thing. It's a kind of parallelism. They're they're synonymous ideas, they run together. So the heart is what Jesus is dealing with here. And in a moment, we'll talk about the relationship between the eye and the body, which is what Jesus goes on to to focus on. But for now, let's look at this contrast between a healthy eye and a bad eye. That's the contrast Jesus makes. A bad eye and a good eye, essentially. What is Jesus saying? Well, I think we get our answer from two places. The first of those places is in the book of Proverbs. The good eye and the bad eye. What exactly does Jesus mean? Well, in Proverbs 28, we read this. A man whose eye is evil, now by the way, that's the way it reads in Hebrew, but we'll see in the ESV, it translates it as stingy, but there's a little note down at the bottom that tells you that this means whose eye is evil. So we're gonna, we're gonna look at it in that way. You would miss that if you didn't notice that note. So a man whose eye is evil hastens after wealth. And we see that already with Jesus talking about our treasure. A man whose eye is evil hastens after wealth. And then listen to these words from Proverbs 23, 6 to 7. Do not eat the bread of a man whose eye is evil. Once again in the ESV, a stingy man. Do not eat the bread of a man whose eye is evil. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Have you ever been around people like that? Where they sort of lavish you with things with their words? They say, oh yeah, take that, take that, here, have that. But in their heart, it's not true. They're thinking in their heart. They're calculating in their heart. Their heart is not with you. And I think as we think about this idea of calculating, it sort of means two things. One, it means that the words they're saying are liberal and lavish, very giving and free and generous. But the truth is, they're just words. They're just meant to impress you or to to give a veneer. But in the heart, they are calculating what they are losing by your eating, what they're losing by your drinking, what they're losing by your taking. They're calculating the loss. It also means, I think, perhaps that they are calculating as they feed you how they might take advantage of you. And so there is this duplicity. There is this evilness of I. You would not think of that if you came across this passage without reading it in light of Proverbs. What about the other side? Proverbs 22, 9 Whoever has a good eye will be blessed. And then listen to how he's described. For he shares his bread with the poor. So that, I think, is the first clue that we get. We go back to Proverbs. We get a little bit of an understanding. When Jesus talks about a healthy eye and a bad eye, or a healthy eye or a good eye and an evil eye, that he is talking about what we have there in Proverbs A second observation that we make is that the Greek word for healthy in verse 22 is closely related to the word for generosity. And so we see that word appearing all throughout the New Testament for generosity. So here's the point. A good eye is a generous heart that is not overtaken by acquiring and pursuing. And a bad eye is an ungenerous heart that is consumed with acquiring and pursuing. So let's go back to our question. What do you see? What do I mean by that? What do you see when you look out around you? Think about this. Every day, at work, in your family, when you come to church, when you come to gather with God's people, when you go about, Your chores, when you go about your errands, when you're just out and about in this world, what do you see through those eyes when you look out into the world around you? Do you see things to be acquired? Do you see dreams to be fulfilled, goals to be met, tasks even to be accomplished? Is that what you see through the eyes of the heart? Is that what you see as you look out on the world as you go through your day from the time your alarm clock goes off in the morning until you lay your head down on the pillow at night and you're going through your days hour by hour? Are are you seeing things, tasks, goals, dreams, or are you seeing people? People to be served. Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what do you see? Your answer to this question will tell you the condition of your eyes, your heart, your treasure, which leads to our next question. Why should you care? Last week, Jesus put an argument in front of us it kind of went like this. Don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. Why? Because they won't last. And the comment I made last week is that Jesus is very practical. We see that especially in the passage on worry. Jesus wants you to just, if you're worried, just kind of look at, look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Just look around, Jesus wants to say. And the same kind of just simple logic. Simple rationality is present here in these verses before the ones we're looking at today where Jesus says, don't store up treasures here, they won't last. It's gonna be a waste. At the end of the day, it's just all gonna be nothing. It's gonna be for nothing. It's gonna be gone. And this squares with all of the language we find in the Bible about our lives. A fading flower, a vapor, a breath, here today, gone tomorrow. Instead, Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven because they will last forever. They will always be there. It is an eternal investment when we spend these these days, these hours, these gifts, these moments, we spend this for the glory of God and the good of people. It is an eternal investment, and there will be a return. There will be a return. We have to have faith to see it. So that was last week, and today, once again, Jesus puts forward another strong argument. What does he say? The condition of the eye determines the condition of the whole, the whole. Look at verses 22 to 23 again. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body Will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? John Stott, a commentator on many passages of God's Word, but has written a great commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he explains it in this way Almost everything the body does depends on our ability to see. The eye, as it were, illumines what the body does through its hands and feet. And the great difference between the light and the darkness of the body is due to this small but intricate organ, the eye. So let's go back to our question. Why? Why should we care? What do you see? You answered that question in your heart or the Holy Spirit answered it for you. Why? Why should we you care. Why should you care if acquiring and pursuing is at the center of your life? In truth, maybe that's you. Just pursuing, building, gaining, establishing, asserting. Why should you care if you have a heart that lacks generosity? Why should you care if you look out over the world and see things rather than people? Why should you care? Maybe You think, you know, I'm young, trying to build a life for myself. There's got to be some margin there from the Lord's perspective for me to kind of be idolatrous in my pursuits, for me to consume myself with my degrees or with building up my 401K right now and getting towards that later on in life, making sure I'm established and I'm building, building, building towards my savings towards the investments that I need to make for my family, getting, getting a house, getting out of an apartment or whatever, fill in the blank, whatever it might be. There's, there's margin there for me to be, to be consumed with these things because I'm young and this is natural, right? No, no. The answer is it's, it is natural. In our natural sinfulness to be consumed by these things. Or maybe you say, you know, sure, I struggle with prioritizing my pursuits over others, but that's just one of my weaknesses. I mean, that's just, you know, I'm kind of introverted. I'm kind of focused on what I'm doing right now. I'm kind of doing me. And so it's just one of my weaknesses. I'll work on that. There are a few places in Scripture where we are told that one thing or one aspect of a person drives and determines the whole life. The whole life derives from this one thing. An example of that is the tongue. We find that in James, chapter three, verse six. Most of you have encountered this. He says this about the tongue. This is incredible language about the tongue, by the way. Not preaching on that today, but just get this. And the tongue is a fire. We've all been burned by other people's tongues. And we've all burned other people with our tongues. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, the whole self, affected by one member, the tongue, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Wow, that little thing called a tongue. And such is the case with our eyes our pursuits, our objectives. Where the eyes go, the whole person goes also. That is what Jesus is saying. So where are you at spiritually? You're sitting here this morning, you're not walking with the Lord. You have no spiritual disciplines in your life really, consumed with various things, just not, not living for God. Not, not spiritually zealous at all for his stuff. It, it, there, there's no real desire to see people saved. There's no real desire to grow in holiness. There's no desire to disciple other people. It's just kind of stale and dry, bone dry, maybe even. Maybe the whole course of your life as it currently stands is a result of an evil eye. Maybe your life has been consumed with this one thing. This one thing. Or this these set of things, these pursuits, these, these main objectives. What is your main objective? If the people who know you best, who love you most, if you ask them, what, what, do you, what, what matters most to me? Really, what matters most to me, really, I'm not talking about the the way that I, I talk when we're having our devotional time, or, you know, I'm not talking about in theory, I'm talking about actually, moment by moment, what I do with my time, what I do with my resources, what matters most to me. Ask them that question today on the drive home, and let the answer pierce your soul. Maybe that is why your life is all dried up. Jesus says here that it will do that. That's why you should care. It's not a small thing at all. That leads us to our third question, when Jesus moves to another image. Which do you serve? We live in a culture that is consumed with things. And this has been the case for decades. I mean, everyone has talked about this for for a long time. People have talked about this for decades. That we're we're very much a material culture. We're materialistic. We we focus often on things. And probably the most visual representation. There's so much you could say about this, but probably the most visual representation of this is how inextricably linked we are to our phones. I mean, at any point in time, I can be walking around the house and just feel, "Where's my phone?" I just, I just need it. I need it because I don't know. I just need it. I don't even know why I need it. I just need my phone. We're just linked to it all the time. And it's just, a, it's just an image. It's just an example of the ways in which our hearts and our, our beings, our, our, our everyday life is so connected to stuff, to things. We love our stuff very much. Maybe we don't. Let me, let me mention this to you. Maybe you don't think you love stuff all that much because you have a lot of it. And you sit in your stuff, with your stuff, thinking about how you really don't need your stuff. But then something comes along and you lose your stuff and you realize how much you love your stuff. How inextricably linked your heart is to those things, which while you have them, you don't think it's true So Jesus gives us another image to challenge us in our daily pursuits. He's given us the images of stored treasure and a body directed by the eye, and now he gives us the image of a slave and his master. Let's look at verse 14, I mean 24, sorry. Let's look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. At the end of verse four, he says, you cannot serve, be a slave to God and money. Now in the old, older translations, that word would be mammon. Cannot serve God and mammon. And you'd read that as a kid. I know I did. I grew up where the King James Version was, was you know, right at hand. And uh, I was like, what in the world is that? Mammon? It's just its totally beyond you. But it essentially is a, it's, it's a Greek word. The Greek word mammon is a transliteration of a Semitic word that simply means money or possessions. And so the ESV editor and others, editors, were smart enough to say, well, let's just translate this money. And that was a good idea and put a little note saying that mammon uh, means this. But that's basically what we have in view here. Possessions, things, money, and one of the core truths of Christianity is that a Christian is freed from slavery to become a slave. Do you know that, think about it this way as a Christian. There's never a moment from your birth, even your conception, from your birth all the way up till your death in which you are not a slave. Period. You are either a slave of sin or a slave of God. All. The biblical writers refer to themselves as bondservants, slaves, slaves of Christ, slaves of God. Throughout the epistle to Romans, to the Romans, Paul frequently refers to us as belonging to Christ. He possesses us. We are not our own. We've died We've been crucified with him. We've died to ourselves. We now belong to him. He owns you if you're a Christian. You don't have the right to go your own way. You belong to him. That is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. Our love, devotion is directed towards him. He is our master. We have often heard people say that money is the root of all evil. You've probably heard that before. Money is the root of all evil, but that's not biblical. That's not true, as though anyone who has money is automatically stained by sin because they have money. That's not it at all. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money Being devoted to money, serving money is the root of all kinds of evil, not just one singular type of evil. And that squares exactly with what Jesus is saying here. The whole body is corrupted. So, of course, the whole self is corrupted. Of course, it's going to manifest itself in diverse ways. All kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And notice what Paul says, it is through this loving, craving, serving that some have wandered away from the faith. Have you wandered away from the faith? Christian, have you wandered away from your savior, from your Lord, from your master, because of this? Because you love money, you love stuff, you love your dreams, We're meant to ask these questions. So I ask again, where are you at? Where are you at spiritually? Are you wondering? Are you wavering? Maybe it is because you are trying to serve two masters and end up serving only one, mammon. So let's go to our last question, why must you choose? Jesus tells us simply that it is impossible to be a slave of two masters. One will be preferred, loved, over the other, hated. This idea of hating and loving and and hating and loving being contrasted in this way is really a Semitic idea. It's a Hebrew expression. We know that from Luke 14, 26. Have you ever encountered this verse and scratched your head and said, what in the world is Jesus talking about? It says this, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children. What? I didn't sign up for that. Hold on a second, Jesus. What are you saying? Yep. His brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, we know Jesus commands us to love. We know That Jesus wants us to honor our parents and that includes loving them. We know that Jesus wants a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. So he doesn't hate his wife. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that in comparison to the love you have for me, it is as though you hate everything else. Because your love for me is so grand. It is so unfathomably rich and huge that everything else pales in comparison. Everything else is made small and hated in a sense by the grandeur of the love and devotion that we have for our God. Slavery by its nature is exclusive. God has exclusive rights to your life if you are a Christian. And this brings us back to our redemption. Jesus Christ purchased us with his own blood. You know, this idea of being a slave is a little uncomfortable. We think, well, hold on a second. You know, I mean, that's great. I understand, you know, Jesus is my Lord and I'm a slave of Christ. I serve him. But I mean, that just, that just feels uncomfortable. What we need to understand is all that language of slavery is couched within the reality that he purchased you for eternity from hell with his blood, that he endured the wrath of the Father, separation from the Father, becoming sin for us, that we might become sons and daughters of God, forever, pure, spotless, joyful, eternal. Praise God we are his slaves. Every minute and every cent of our lives is from him and through him, Every is from him and to him. Every resource is a gift that he has given us. Remember the prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. You give us. It's a gift. Everything we have, even down to that tiny morsel of bread that we eat that sustains us, that last little bit of life. We need life. Everything that we have Every basic necessity, every luxury, every joyful, blissful moment with your children, every embrace with your spouse, every fun vacation, everything you have is a gift from God. All of it. Your daily bread to be used for the hallowing of his name and the coming of his kingdom. Every last bit of it. This is why you have it. Christian, this is why you have it. This is why you have it, for the glory of your God. So ask yourself this morning, where is my treasure? How is my vision? Who is my master? Ask these questions. Let the Holy Spirit do his work in you, Christian. And go, live for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. Let's pray. Our great God, help us, Father. We are deeply covetous And idolatrous. We love things more than you. We love loved ones more than you. We love feelings more than you. We love our sleep and our fun and our free time and our jobs and our futures and our bank accounts, our cars. Our houses, everything more than you, God, forgive us. We need your grace, Father. We know that you dispense that to your children. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, we ask you now, God, have mercy upon us and help us when we look out into the world to see people. See people made in your divine image, people whom you crafted and, and filled with an eternal soul, people who will live forever, either in heaven or in hell, but will live forever. Father, help us see people, not things, not tasks, not goals, but human beings. And help us lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Father, help us have the faith to see those treasures as real, to see your kingdom as real, and to see a new heaven and a new earth in which there is no need for a sun because your glory lights everything up. Help us see that through the eyes of faith that we might take hold of spiritual things and put them above the physical things that enslave us still. Father, have mercy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.